Okay, so um, our subject today, according to the programme, is Glory to God from 1 Peter chapter 4. And like many of the passages um, in the Bible, there is just so much in this chapter uh, that we could never um, cover it all in um, any depth, even if we had more than the 30 minutes that uh, we've got left today. But I'm going to try and pick out some of the key messages and if you feel like we've just skimmed the surface, then, well, you, that's an opportunity for you to dig deeper in your uh, private reading at home. God's glory uh, is an underlying theme, I suggest, throughout this passage. But I'm going to tackle it by looking at two uh, apparently different subjects from the passage. Uh, relationships and suffering. Uh, because Peter links both these subjects to the matter of God's glory. So let's look at the first one then, relationships. And we're reading in 1 Peter 4 from verse 7 down to verse 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So, what have we got here? In verse 7, it starts with uh, a note of urgency. The end is near. That really sets the tone for everything that, that follows. He says, therefore... There's, there's an urgency because the time is short. There's an urgency because these things are important. There's an urgency because we're in danger. And so he says we need to be alert and sober-minded. This is the first of some very serious challenges that the Holy Spirit gives us through Peter in this chapter. And we can either ignore them... Or we can ask ourselves a question, do I need to change anything in my life? I just um, make that point because I think there is a tendency for mature Christians or Christians who read God's word and listen to it often, I think there is a bit of a tendency for all of us at times to treat it like a kind of revision or something just to enjoy. Things that we understand, we've heard before perhaps, and it's a nice thing to do on a Sunday afternoon, isn't it? To listen to a message from God's Word. But how often really do we come to God's Word in our, in ministry, when we're listening to ministry or when we're studying it for ourselves with the attitude that maybe God wants me to change something? Our willingness maybe to change something. I hope I'm not doing anyone a disservice by saying, I don't think we do that very often. 
Maybe it's just a confession, or I don't do it very often. But I think it's the attitude that we're meant to bring to God's word. So there are some challenges in our passage today that we better pay attention to. And this is the first one. It says that we need to be alert and sober-minded so that, why? So that we can pray, he says. Now we know that nothing hinders God's ability to hear our prayers, but I think this is talking about the quality of our prayer lives. In other words, if we're not enjoying open, honest and sincere prayer times with the Lord, then the logic of verse 7 is that there must be something wrong with us. There must be something wrong with our alertness or our sober-mindedness. Yes? A poor prayer life is an indicator of poor spiritual health. So when scripture says that one, should, one thing should lead to another and the other thing is lacking in any way, then, then we need to examine the cause, don't we? We need to think about what, what it might be. We need to be alert and sober-minded. The, um, the word sober-minded, it, it, it means um, safe-minded. It means guarding our thoughts from any um, sin or distraction. And that's important, isn't it? Because scripture tells us that we have an enemy. Our enemy, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. So we need to be alert and safe-minded. Now, we can't underestimate the importance of verse 8, because it says, above all, above all, we should love one another deeply. Now, the literal uh, meaning for that is that we should love with every muscle strained, uh, which is a, a strange definition, I thought, when I, when I read it. But I think it's just highlighting that loving one another and showing love to one another is not um, always easy. It sometimes requires um, quite a bit of effort. Uh, and I think we get that in what comes right after. It says, because, love one another deeply, because love, love covers over a multitude of sins. And I think most commentators agree that that's not referring to the love of God and the atonement covering our sins. It's referring to the fact that we should be overlooking one another's faults if we, if we love one another deeply. And we do have a lot of faults, don't we? Um, seriously, <laughs> we do have a lot of faults. I have a lot of faults, I know that uh, for sure. Um, and it can be so easy to become irritated or resentful or judgmental about the behaviour of others. But Peter is saying that if we have a deep love for each other, then that shouldn't be a problem because we'll be instinctively looking for the positives in one another so much that the negatives don't matter too much. Now, you might say um, to me, perhaps, well, but we do love one another. It's one of the things that visitors always comment on when they come into our church. The great love that we all have for one another. I'm not taking anything away from that. But you know that in church, we're on our best behaviour. So maybe we shouldn't congratulate ourselves um, too much um, about that. The challenge from verse 8, I think, really is, do we love one another deeply? Do you love everyone in this church deeply? And if the answer is <coughs> yes, then that is, that's wonderful. But I've just got a little question, or maybe it's a little um, challenge, a task for you. In my day job, 
every opinion and conclusion has to be backed up by evidence. So when you instinctively say, yes, of course, I love my brothers and sisters deeply, how do you know? How do you know that you love your brothers and sisters deeply? And the follow-on question, of course, is how do they know? By the way, you remember from chapter 1, perhaps, that this letter is written to God's elect all over the place. So I think this call to love extends far beyond our immediate church community. It includes our brothers and sisters in, in, in other churches um, too, indeed the wider body of Christ. Um, now obviously we have less opportunity to have meaningful relationships with people in Christ who we've never met before. Um, but the wider community of the fellowship that we are part of, that this church is part of, that's a very special thing. And we should have an appetite to attend and support other district events in this in the northwest um, at least um, not just because of all the great things that we can get from attending um, ypms you know they are for all ages just throw that one in um, but conferences and other district events you can there's lots of great things that you can get from that but in the matter of this what we're looking at here they are great opportunities to develop uh, to deepen to maintain our relationships with our fellow brothers and sisters in our, in our neighbouring churches. Verse 9 talks about hospitality, which of course is a very practical way of sharing love uh, with one another. In the early church, where the church met in each other's homes, there was a very practical need that was met through people practising hospitality. But I don't think Peter was um, encouraging hospitality just for the sake of having somewhere for the church to meet. I think he was just reflecting the very, um, the very real truth is that spending time together joyfully, willingly, is really an essential thing to do um, if we want to um, build and maintain our relationships. And Haley, I'm so sorry that Angel will not be at your house tonight for the church social. We do have a family calling, which on this occasion um, was unavoidable. We'd love to be there. For everybody else, you better be there after what I've just said. <laughs> right, so, um, verse 9 talks about hospitality. Verse 10, really linked to the same kind of thing, talks about using our gifts. Using our gifts to serve. And although we normally think about our service as Christians as being towards God, and the reference to faithful stewardship does remind us that we have um, a duty to use our gifts for the one who gave them uh, to us. It's interesting to see here that our duty towards God can be and should be discharged in our service towards one another. It's saying that we should use our gifts to serve others as an expression of God's grace towards them. You'll notice there's no attempt to list or limit the gifts here. It just talks about God's grace in its various forms. And I think it's pointing to the great diversity of gift. And it says that each one of us should use our gift. So it's one of the verses which confirms that we all have a gift or gifts from God. And I think sometimes um, Christians spend a little bit too much time, wasted time, I think, um, trying to work out which one of the spiritual gifts from Ephesians 4 and Romans 12 they might have. 
Um, but I think the message here is don't worry about that. Just do whatever you can in the service of others and God's grace will abound. God's works have been prepared in advance for us. We know that, don't we? And so we can rightly expect that those works and our opportunity and our gifts, all of that to, com to coincide. And on that point, being channels of God's grace to others, verse 11 reminds us that we should take great care in the way that we do whatever we do for the Lord. We should take great care in the things that we do and say because we are God's representatives. We are God's representatives, not just in preaching and sharing the gospel, but in every word or act of kindness. We should show love to one another and to the wider community in words and deeds as if Jesus himself was doing it or saying it. And so here's the challenge, the next challenge. Do you, do I, see ourselves as channels of God's blessings to others? And I'm not just asking if we're prepared to acknowledge that God is in some way indirectly responsible or has influenced any good that we happen to do. I'm asking if we see it as our purpose, our mission in life to do good for others. Do we actively look for opportunities? And does the quality and the generosity of our service reflect the fact that we are God's representatives and that he is watching and actually, in a sense, scoring our performance? Because we will, you know, have to give an account one day. If our behaviour bears the hallmark of the Lord and in all our efforts we acknowledge that our ability and our motivation comes from him, then it will bring glory, honour, praise and worship. It will bring glory to God. So that's our first subheading, so to speak. Um, the easier one, I think, um, relationships. The second one uh, is this matter of suffering. Now, I'm not sure if I could do any more than skim the surface on this one, even if I had twice as much um, time. And we certainly don't have time to go into it in any depth um, today in, in, um, in ten, 10 minutes or so. But I'm going to try and treat it, deal with it like this. I, I want to focus on a little phrase that we get across the first two verses, where Peter says, uh, don't be surprised, but rejoice. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. So let's read from verse 12 down to <coughs> verse 16. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. 
I think it's um, the most common and understandable um, question often asked um, by Christians about Christian suffering um, is why? Maybe because perhaps, although we know we shouldn't expect this, nevertheless somewhere deep in our hearts we kind of expect that God will look after his own in some way and that perhaps will spur us from the kind of suffering that maybe other people might go to. It doesn't make sense from what we've been told in scripture, but sometimes perhaps we feel like that. And Peter responds to that kind of question, the why question, not by saying that, look, it's an unavoidable consequence of sin and we just need to endure it. Peter goes, to the other, goes far beyond that. He says it's actually a positive thing that we should rejoice in. And I would never stand here before you and say that, um, having never suffered in the way that some people do. But I'm telling you, and you can read it for yourself, that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through Peter. It's something positive, and it's something that with God's help we can rejoice in. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. What does that mean? Well, clearly suffering is a consequence of sin, and we know that there'll be no suffering in heaven, so regardless of any positives that can be taken from the experience of suffering in this life, it is only for this life, but what we're being given here is a perspective on suffering unique to the Christian, which does see it as a positive thing. And I'm going to give you six reasons from um, this passage why we should be able somehow to rejoice in suffering. Firstly, and right at the beginning from verse 13, it brings us closer to Christ to share in his suffering. It's true, isn't it, that when we have shared experiences with people, it draws us closer together. You know, when people come together and they could talk about holidays that they've been on together or things that they've done together, good things, it's a, it's a, it's a shared experience. It reminds them of the friendship that they have. It draws them together. It seems even more so when people go through hard times together, sometimes terrible experiences uh, people who've lived through world wars talk about the bonds uh, that was experienced uh, between people who went through such terrible times. Um, hard times can bring people together even more. Our relationship with the Lord can be enhanced as we reflect on any suffering that we experience in this life because of him is assuring in his sufferings. When he said in this world you'll have trouble, it was right after he had set that expectation to the disciples by referring to his own suffering. He said, if they hated me, they'll hate you too. So suffering can bring us closer to Christ. But like Christ, and it influenced my thanksgiving this morning when I was thinking about this, Suffering is also the path to glory. So the second reason is it's a path to glory. Uh, also in verse 13. 
rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Romans 8 and 17 uh, perhaps comes to mind. We are co-heirs with Christ if we share in his suffering, so that we may also share in his glory. The third reason um, is that in suffering we become, uh, can become more aware of the Holy Spirit's presence. It says in verse 14, didn't it? If you were insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory, the association with glory again, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Remember it was Elijah at one of the lowest points in his, his experience, hiding away in a cave, and it was then, it seems, that he was more able to hear the word of God um, and be aware of the presence of God right there in the cave in that gentle, gentle blowing. So um, in suffering we can become more aware of the Holy Spirit's presence. He's, he's always there, of course, we know he indwells us. He never leaves us, but sometimes it takes difficult times for us to look for him, uh, listen to him, um, realise that he's there. Number four, from verse 17, um, it refers to God's judgment on his own household. I haven't read that verse yet, let me just read it. It is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be, will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The second part of that and also the following verses referring to the judgment, you know, the, the, the judgment of God on the unsaved. But, and it's given to contrast with our situation where although we are believers in the Lord Jesus and eternally secure, nevertheless... <coughs> we can be subject to God's discipline, to different kinds of judgment, and it's given for a different reason, but there can be, in response to our sins and failings, there can be the discipline of God. And if the discipline is effective, then initially there should be sorrow, because there should be repentance, but we can rejoice in it eventually, as we realise that God only disciplines those whom he loves. He only disciplines those he regards as children. That's the message of Hebrews 12, isn't it? And Hebrews 12 goes on to say that it produces a harvest of righteousness. Why can we rejoice in the discipline of God, recognising that it's only necessary because we've done wrong? It's because it reminds us that he loves us, and he wants the best for us, and he's going to make us a better Christian. Verse 12, the fifth one um, point, refers to their suffering as a fiery ordeal. Or it says trial in some versions. It also um, goes on to say, to refer to it being a test. So whether the suffering is inflicted by God, or as in the case of Job, allowed by God, it's still an experience that we go through where we either pass or fail. It's, it's, it's a kind of a test. And to pass the test doesn't mean that we have to be cheerful and happy in suffering. The word rejoice doesn't mean that. It's an, it's, a, it's an inner joy that comes from the positive perspective that Peter is giving to us here. So the test is, can we maintain that positive 
perspective despite the pain of trial. And no matter, you know, despite everything that Peter is saying here, you know, he doesn't take away from the fact that it's a fiery trial. It's a fiery test. It is something where there is pain. Um, but if we can maintain that positive perspective, it is a test that we can pass and we will be rewarded for that one day. And finally, um, number six from verse 19. Um, it says that those who suffer according to God's will have an opportunity. The word opportunity is not in verse 19. I'll read it to you. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Where's the opportunity? It's an opportunity to trust. It's an opportunity to commit ourselves to God. Sometimes we need something difficult to get us to the next level. Some of you will know that I spend a lot of time these days helping people to get fit. And one thing uh, which is nearly always true is that people don't know how much they can do until someone asks them to do it. And so here's the final challenge. And it's a big one. And it might be a while before you or I are called to face it fully. Some in this assembly have already perhaps faced it fully enough. <coughs> but we don't know what lies in store for us along the path that God has set for us. So whenever that time happens, when perhaps we are called to a fiery trial, um, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised because God is asking you to do something, perhaps something more than he's ever asked you to do before. To trust him more, to commit to him more, knowing that in the process of suffering, we bring glory to God. And in the end, we will share in that glory. Love that verse, and I'll finish with that verse um, that we read at the end of the first passage. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.